section thirty four of a history of our own times volume four by justin mccarthy this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by pamela nagami chapter sixty the black sea clause the alabama arbitration part three the commissioners held a long series of meetings in washington and at length arrived at a basis of arbitration this was set forth in a memorable document the treaty of washington the treaty of washington acknowledged the international character of the dispute and it opened with a remarkable admission on the part of the english government it announced that her britannic majesty has authorized her high commissioners and plenipotentiaries to express in a friendly spirit the regret felt by her majesty's government for the escape under whatever circumstances of the alabama and other vessels from british ports and for the depredations committed by those vessels this was a very unusual acknowledgment to make as the opening of a document intended to establish a tribunal of arbitration for the claims in dispute it ought not in itself to be considered as anything of a humiliation in public as in private life it ought to be honourable rather than otherwise to express regret that we should even unwittingly have done harm to our neighbour or allowed harm to be done to him that we had shot our arrow or the house and hurt our brother but when compared with the stand which english ministers had taken not many years before this was indeed a considerable change of attitude it is not surprising that many englishmen chafed at the appearance of submission which it presented the treaty then proceeded to lay down three rules which it was agreed should be accepted by the arbitrators as applicable to the case these rules were a neutral government is bound first to use due diligence to prevent the fitting out arming or equipping within its jurisdiction of any vessel which it has reasonable ground to believe is intended to cruise or to carry on war against a power with which it is at peace and also to use like diligence to prevent the departure from its jurisdiction of any vessel intended to cruise or carry on war as above such vessel having been specially adapted in whole or in part within such jurisdiction to warlike use secondly not to permit or suffer either belligerent to make use of its ports or waters as the base of naval operations against the other or for the purpose of the renewal or augmentation of military supplies or arms or the recruitment of men thirdly to exercise due diligence in its own ports and waters and as to all persons within its jurisdiction to prevent any violation of the foregoing obligations and duties the british commissioners followed up the acceptance of these three rules by a saving clause declaring that the english government could not assent to them as a statement of principles of international law which were in force at the time when the claims arose but that in order to evince its desire of strengthening the friendly relations between the two countries and of making satisfactory provision for the future it agreed that in deciding the questions arising out of the claims these principles should be accepted and the high contracting parties agreed to observe these rules between themselves in future and to bring them to the knowledge of other maritime powers and to invite them to accede to them 
the treaty went on to provide for the settlement of the alabama claims by a tribunal of five arbitrators one to be appointed by the queen and the others respectively by the president of the united states the king of italy the president of the swiss confederation and the emperor of brazil this tribunal was to meet in geneva and was to decide by a majority all the questions submitted to it the treaty further provided for a tribunal to settle what may be called individual claims on either side and another commission to meet afterwards at halifax nova scotia and deal with the fishery question an old outstanding dispute as to the reciprocal rights of british and american subjects to fish on each other's coasts it referred the question of the northern boundary between the british north american territories and the united states to the arbitration of the german emperor it also opened the navigation of the st lawrence and other rivers some delay was caused in the meeting of the tribunal of arbitration at geneva by the sudden presentation on the part of the american government of what were called the indirect claims to the surprise of everybody the american case when presented was found to include claims for vast and indeed almost limitless damages for indirect losses alleged to be caused by the crews of the alabama and the other vessels the loss by the transfer of trade to english vessels the loss by increased rates of insurance and all imaginable losses incident to the prolongation of the war were now made part of the american claims it was clear that if such a principle were admitted there was no possible reason why the claim should not include every dollar spent in the whole operations of the war and in supplying any of the war's damages from the first day when the alabama put to sea no one can undertake to say as a matter of certainty that the southern confederates might not have submitted at once if only the alabama had been seized and detained and therefore indirect claims might just as well be stretched out at once so as to cover all the subsequent expenses of the war in truth the indirect claims were not only absurd but even monstrous and the english government had not for one moment the slightest idea of admitting them as part of the case to be laid before the arbitrators at geneva the bare suggestion seemed more like a rude practical joke than a statesmanlike proposition even men like mr bright who had been devoted friends of the north during the war protested against this insufferable claim it was at last withdrawn we now know on the best possible authority that the american government never meant to press it mr john russell young's interesting account of his journey around the world with general grant gives an account of a conversation he had with the late president of the united states on the subject of the indirect claims mr young assures his readers that all his reports of statements made by general grant have been submitted to general grant's own revision general grant told mr young that he was personally opposed to the presentation of the indirect claims and that his secretary of state mr fish was also opposed to them i said general grant never believed in the presentation of indirect claims against england i did not think it would do any good i knew england would not consider them and that it would complicate our meritorious case by giving her something to complain about mr fish agreed in this view but was of opinion that mr sumner had to be considered mr sumner was the chairman of the senate's committee on foreign affairs 
a formidable man at such a time. He was not cordial to the treaty, and was displeased because General Grant and Mr. Fish had already overruled one of his suggestions that the first condition of peace with England should be the withdrawal of her flag from the North American continent. That suggestion General Grant rightly described as a declaration of war, and I wanted peace, not war. Mr. Sumner had laid great stress on indirect claims, and not to offend him, and not to leave an opening for future complaints on the part of demagogues, it was thought by Mr. Fish that the best way of getting rid of the indirect claims would be to let them go to the Geneva arbitration. General Grant allowed himself to be convinced against his will. But neither Mr. Fish nor myself expected any good from the presentation. It really did harm to the treaty by putting our government and those in England who were our friends in a false position. It was a mistake, but well intended. It is a mistake ever to say more than you mean, and as we never meant the indirect claims, we should not have presented them even to please Mr. Sumner. It was indeed a profound mistake. It was a stroke of policy which no statesman should ever have stooped to sanction. The arbitration was on the point of being broken off. The excitement in England was intense. The American government had at last to withdraw the claims. The Geneva arbitrators of their own motion declared that all such claims were invalid and contrary to international law. The mere fact of their presentation went far to destroy all the credit which the United States would have obtained by the firm maintenance of their just demands and their recognition by the Court of Arbitration. The decision of the Geneva Tribunal went against England. The Court was unanimous in finding England responsible for the acts of the Alabama. A majority found her responsible for the acts of the Florida and for some of those of the Shenandoah, but not responsible for those of other vessels. They awarded a sum of about three millions and a quarter sterling as compensation for all losses and final settlement of all claims including interest. Sir Alexander Coburn, who attended the sittings of the court as the representative of England, presented a long and eloquent protest against a great part of the finding of the tribunal. While admitting the decision in the case of the Alabama and recommending submission to the general award, Sir Alexander Coburn made a sort of historical vindication or apologia of the conduct of the English government during the Civil War. It was an eloquent, patriotic, and impassioned plaidoyer, which seemed oddly out of place in the somewhat dry and business-like records of the tribunal's transactions. It occupied two hundred and fifty pages of the London Gazette. Many readers admired it. Some smiled at it. The great majority of Englishmen did not read it. It was not so much preserved as entombed in the ponderous pages of the official journal. The German emperor was left to decide as to the ownership of the small island of San Juan near Vancouver's Island, a question remaining unsettled since the Oregon Treaty, and already explained in this work. The emperor decided that the American claim to the island was just. San Juan had for years been in a somewhat hazardous condition of joint occupation by England and the United States. It was evacuated by England in consequence of the award at the close of November 1873. The principle of arbitration had not thus far worked in a manner calculated greatly to delight the English people, 
In each case the award had gone decidedly against them. No doubt it had gone against them because the right of each case was against them. And those who submit to arbitration have no business to complain because a decision is not given in their favour. England had in any case gained much by the policy which submitted the dispute to a peaceful tribunal. She had saved her own people and her opponents as well from the terrible ordeal of a war in which victory would have been only one degree better than defeat. She avoided all the legacy of reciprocal hate, which is the inevitable penalty of war. She had done her part toward the establishment of a great principle for the benefit of all coming generations. Yet it would be impossible to say that the feeling of the English people was one of unmixed satisfaction. The bulk of a population is not made up of moral philosophers, and what most of the English people saw was that England had been compelled in homely phrase to knuckle down to America. The policy which accepted the arbitration seems to us to have been entirely wise, honourable, statesmanlike, and just. The fault to be found was with that earlier policy, which gave the United States only too fair a ground for asserting their claims. But it is certain that Mr. Gladstone and his colleagues suffered in public esteem by the mere fact of their having accepted the arbitration which went so signally against England. They were somewhat in the position of a government who have to submit to rigorous and humiliating terms of peace. They may not have been responsible for the war. It may have been no act of theirs which made the acceptance of the harsh terms a cruel necessity. It may not be open to anyone to say that they had any practical alternative but to submit to the demands of the occasion. All this may be true. Yet none the less is the government to be pitied, which has to submit to any terms of peace by which its people seem to be humbled. The Conservative Party made it for a long time a great point against Mr. Gladstone's government that he had accepted the Treaty of Washington. They did not always seem to reflect that a leading Conservative, Sir Stafford Northcote, had been made one of the joint commissioners in order that the arrangement might not seem to be the mere act of a political party. Perhaps in one or two instances the manner in which the treaty was vindicated may have helped to embitter the sacrifice. Mr. Lowe, for instance, put it as a clear saving of money, pointing out that a war would have cost much more than the expense of paying off the award. This was not the happiest way of commending the transaction to the sympathies of a proud and somewhat unreasoning public. However that may be, it is certain that the effect of the Geneva arbitration was to create a sore and angry feeling among Englishmen in general. The feeling found expression with some, smouldered in sullenness with others. It was unreasonable and unjust, but it was not altogether unnatural, and it had its effect on the popularity of Mr. Gladstone's government. The opening of the session of 1872 was made melancholy by the announcement that Lord Mayo, the Viceroy of India, had been killed by a fanatical assassin in a convict settlement on one of the Andaman Islands, which the Viceroy was inspecting. Lord Mayo had borne himself well in his difficult position, and had won the admiration of men of all parties by his firmness, his energy, his humanity, and his justice. End of section 33